Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. This week, we are going to start out with the story of a Watervliet man who went looking for his birth family recently, only to find out that he had been stolen from them in Chile under a forced adoption program in the brutal regime of dictator General Augusto Pinochet in the 1980s. Times Union reporter Patrick Tyne joins me now to talk more about that story. Let's set up the story here. You did a story um, this past week about a local man, a man from Watervliet, who is of Chilean descent but was adopted um, and is now learning some kind of groundbreaking, earth-shattering things about where he came from. So can you kind of set the stage for us? How did you how did you come upon this story and kind of what what is the, what are the basics? Sure. The story of Ben uh, Fructor kind of started because we got an email from a group called Connecting Roots, which uh, since only a few years ago when they got started, has worked to uh, reunite you know, adults who were taken from Chile. They were adopted uh, from that country. Is it a local group? No, they're, ba- they're based in Texas. It's a Texas-based okay. uh, group actually founded by a, a person who was also uh, taken from Chile and uh, under this forced uh, adoption program. And they have reunited several dozen, uh, uh, they say on average about one person a month with their birth families. What is this forced adoption situation? Like, when did it happen? Give, give us a little history of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. During the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile, which lasted from uh, 1973, when uh, he overthrew uh, the democratically elected president of Chile until 1990, um, when the country transitioned uh, painfully to democracy, there were gross uh, abuses of human rights. Tens of thousands of people were tortured. Thousands of people were disappeared uh, and killed. Uh, that's basically just a euphemism for, for killed, and then no information was ever given to their families. Mm-hmm. And uh, as part of this program in Chile, and this very right-wing program in Chile, young women, almost all of them very poor, many of them also indigenous, had their children taken away from them. Uh, It was part of, from what I understand it to be as as kind of an an anti-poverty program, this idea of taking children away from from women that the government believed couldn't support them. And there was a lot of corruption in that effort that ultimately culminated in 
people being uh, adopted by families all over the world who, as far as I can tell, and certainly in the case of Ben, uh, had no idea of the circumstances. Was the Chilean government profiting off of these adoptions? I think it's safe to say yes. There was the money was certainly changing hands. How exactly that worked, uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm not an expert in that. But it, it was. This was a, a culture of, of corruption in that country, and I think certainly there people were induced by bribes, and there were uh, adoption agencies, and there was also um, a great deal of there was this climate of fear where anybody who might feel inclined to speak out about it uh, couldn't for fear that there would be uh, pretty swift and violent government reprisals. Mm, what a horrible situation. So this this man from Waterville, Ben Fruchter, was one of those babies that was taken, right? Yes. All right. So you met with Ben in a coffee shop not too long ago before you wrote the story. Yeah. Give me his origin story from when he came to the United States as a, as a baby. Um, I knew that I was adopted from probably an early age, like four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, I was... Well, we were all told that uh, my family was kind of low income uh, and that they were essentially gave me up for adoption to give me a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually have the paperwork for it um, mm-hmm. that states that, uh, you know, my birth mother had basically given me up. He grew up in, in Colony, uh, lived in Colony for most of his life. It was only in the last few years that he moved to Waterville. He went to, to Colony schools. He talked about having, uh, I think, a, a fairly, you know, kind of normal upbringing. There, there were moments in his, in his schooling, you know, with school projects where you'd have to kind of look into your family tree and your background that he... Um, said was kind of, you know, difficult, certainly compared to other students. But I, I think he was a, a well-adjusted uh, person growing up in this area. And he, he was telling me about he recently joined a, a group of pinball uh, enthusiasts and aficionados that meets uh, mainly in Saratoga County. And they go to people's homes where they have these collections of interesting pinball machines or arcades. And that's like something that he enjoys uh, uh, doing, doing for fun. Oh, that's uh, neat. So flash forward, fast forward rather, to today, right? When did he find out about his past? How did that come to him? He only found out in the last few months, like in October, um, he started getting results of uh, DNA tests that uh, were done on his behalf by the Connecting Roots group. Yeah, they get back to me and they say, um, we found your birth family. And from there, it emerged that he had an active Chilean, like, social security number. Like, he was still oh, on wow. the books in Chile as as a citizen. Uh, I don't know technically what his citizenship status is in Chile, but I'm, I'm sure he has a very good claim to citizenship in that country if he wants it. But as far as... Th- as their bureaucracy was concerned, uh, he was Chilean. And that's also how his family down there realized that he was out there. And then he told me that he thought that his family thought that, that he might actually be in Chile because of the, this active social security number that they were also able to find out on their end. You know, he told you some of what he learned about what happened when he was a baby, right? Um, what happened was, um, I think it was two or three months after I was born, my oldest brother took me to the hospital because I was having respiratory issues at the time. Um, he did it by himself, 
Um, and he, um, so they essentially lost him, you know, uh, in, or lost me in uh, moving from war to war when really it was actually, you know, the whole snatching. Yes. So his brother took him to the hospital when he was, he had come home from the hospital, he'd been born and he was having a respiratory issue and, and, and they obviously thought it was serious enough that he needed to go to the hospital. So his, his older brother took him. He was admitted to the hospital and that's really where the trouble began because the family very rapidly stopped getting any sort of communication or, or answers from people in this hospital in, in central Chile. Um, they were saying that he'd been moved from ward to ward and then that uh, he was lost. And obviously, I think if that happened, you know, here or something, you, you, a parent or a family wouldn't stand for that. You know, it, it would be lawsuits. It would be people going in there and, 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 and just banging on tables and demanding um you know, some answers and people would be right to do that. They'd be right to do that here. They'd be right to do that there. But try banging on a table in a dictatorship. Right. You know, what, what's going to happen? There, there were, there were, you know, seven other siblings. There were all sorts of ways that there could have been reprisals. So the, right. the precise details of how he was taken outside of that, I don't fully know, but it was clear that, his birth mother was torn to pieces by this. The family didn't know. By the year 2000, she drank herself to death. There was this enormous feeling of regret and loss. And I'm sure you're asking yourself, you know, what did I do? What else could I have done? And, but I think in a, in a climate like that, there was very little, you were leaving yourself very exposed and your family very exposed. If you made too much of a, um, of a point of trying to, to fight and it's terrible. Um, Right. So how how does it feel knowing this? I mean, how do you how do you sit with it? I mean, what were your initial re, you know reactions and and just how how did you process all of this? Or are you still processing it? Um yeah, I mean yeah, I'm still it still kind of comes and goes. I don't think it's you know really hit me so much. Um, probably once I actually get down there, it's probably really going to sink in. Um, but. Um, you know, I had it kind of in the back of my mind. I knew I had a family out there somewhere. You've always known that, even before you were able to. Yeah, really process everything. You know, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm like glad to reconnect with them. So of course, on the other side, once you know he was adopted in the United States, his adopted family didn't know the circumstances that he was taken from his birth family. Right? They had no idea about any of this. No, none whatsoever. They they had no idea. And his adoptive father has conveyed to the uh, birth family through through Ben, and I think maybe through other ways too, that had they had any inkling that, that there was something not above board in, in how this uh, adoption was carried out, they wouldn't have done it. I mean, they, they, this is not something that they they would have been a party to. Do you, do you on some level feel like you're owed something from the Chilean government or even the American government because of their support of, of that dictatorship over those decades? I, yeah, I definitely felt anger towards Pinochet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously he's, uh, in a, I'd like to believe he's in a, uh, somewhere uh, warmer than California. 
oh, there's so much tragedy in his origin story. But now he has some kind of exciting times ahead of him, right? He's going to Chile this month to meet with his birth family. Um, he's He should be going uh, on the 17th. It's And they're saying it's the largest kind of reunification uh, that they've that they've ever done. People from all over the United States uh, who've, who've learned about their true backgrounds um, are, are going. Where specifically in Chile is he going? So he knows that some of his family lives on the coast of Chile. He was born in a city in central Chile. He has seven brothers and sisters. Wow. He has well over a dozen cousins. And it's you know difficult. They've, they've only connected on Zoom you know, maybe a few times. So it's still kind of, I think for him, still trying to keep everyone straight and who's where. But he knows that some of them are... are, are on the sea, on the, you know, on the water, and he's looking forward to getting down there. Obviously, it's summer right now uh, in Chile, so it's probably a wonderful time to, to be down there and, and, and enjoying that and kind of learning about his native uh, country and, and culture. Wow, that's got to be so exciting for him. I know mm-hmm. it's, it's emotionally, you know, a, a something that most of us could never even imagine, but the sort of the looking forward to that has got to be something that's really positive for him. Oh, absolutely. I think his life has opened up um, in ways that he hasn't expected. I mean, he told me that he always, you know, in his heart, if nothing else, knew that his family was out there. And I think it was very gratifying for him to learn that they were looking for him. I've definitely obviously expressed to my family that, you know, we need to make up for lost times. Um, obviously, I can't, you know, change the past and, you know, grow up with them the way I probably should have. But, you know, we're, uh, we're going to do what we can. You can read more about Ben Fruchter's journey to Chile to reconnect with his lost family at timesunion.com. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we're going to learn about a new and exciting feature coming out of our Capitol Bureau. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. with our brand new Capitol correspondent, Dan Clark. And he's going to be doing something very special that is debuting on Monday. And we're here to talk about it. He teased it a little bit on last week's podcast and got me kind of excited about it. So now that it's finally going to be, you know, out there for all of us, uh, I thought we should uh, go in a little bit more depth. And that is the brand new Capital Confidential with Dan Clark, which is me. The brand new Capital Confidential with Dan Clark. Tell us, what is this and what is in it? I'm so excited about this because we've been planning this for so long. I started at the Times Union about a month ago, and since then, we've been trying to put this together for our readers. So what it's going to be is take your normal Capcom that you get right now and just make it bigger, expand it, and make it more geared towards people who are really watching the state capital and Albany in general. 
general. So we'll of course have the news of the day. That's what the purpose of a newsletter is, but we're not going to stop there. So we're going to do the news of the day and then kind of break it down, expand on it and provide more context and analysis that you probably don't usually get in the news cycle. You know, as reporters, we are very aware that people will not read our entire articles. So it's important that we <laughs> or have... listen to our entire podcast. Exactly. But... So it's important to have this space where we can expand more because we know readers are not going to read that whole article, but if they click on our newsletter or get it in their email, they're going to get more of the story than they get usually from us. Oh, that is so exciting. And again, it's going to debut on Monday. And you kind of talked already about why we're doing it, but let's talk a little bit more about that. Why is it important? I mean, I feel like we as the Times Union are kind of uniquely positioned here in Albany to do something like this. So tell us more about that. Exactly. I mean, we have now, I think, the biggest capital bureau in the state. Uh, Other outlets are there, obviously, of course, but bringing me on to do this newsletter is a big step forward for that. So what we found is that people really want quick information and they don't just want to read news stories and they don't just want links in a newsletter. What people are really craving right now is a little bit more because as you and I both know, trust in the media has gone down among the public. So if we can create these spaces where we have anchors like me in a newsletter to really build that trust with an audience and really expand on something that we're already doing, we find that really valuable both from a public perspective and internally for us, it allows us to expand the products that we already have on the table. Yes. And speaking of products that we do have, you're planning more than just, you know, a newsletter in your inbox. You're planning events. You're planning different multimedia things. So can you talk about some of the things that are in store in that realm? Yeah, exactly. So part of this is definitely live events. We want to have top newsmakers come over here to the Times Union in Colony, to the Hearst Media Center, where we can interview them. Of course, those events would be, you know, free for subscribers to this new new newsletter. And we're talking about really important people like the Senate Majority Leader of the State Senate the Speaker of the State Assembly, the other legislative leaders, top newsmakers. We're thinking about environmental events where we have a panel of environmentalists come on and just talk about you know, the Adirondacks, something that people don't get a lot of coverage of usually because there is no lot going on up there. But as you and I both know, as, as residents of the capital region is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all of these live events, where are they happening or where are they likely to happen? So they're likely to happen here at the TU in Colony at the Hearst Media Center. But we're also planning to do some live events down in the city at the Hearst Tower. And we're hoping to get people like the governor to come to those events and sit down for an interview with us before a live audience. You know. Those are the kind of spaces that we're trying to create, trying to bring people together in state government and politics in ways that isn't really happening right now. We want to establish that connection to build trust. That sounds really exciting. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, we've talked about this before, you know, in our last segment that we did for the Eagle, um, about some of the things, the actual stories that you're kind of going to be looking into. What are the big issues uh, before New York State government this year? Like, can you give us like kind of a teaser of what you're going to be highlighting? Oh, sure. And I'm a big believer that there are no small issues in state government and policy. And that's part of what this newsletter is going to be about before I get to your question. Uh, This newsletter is going to highlight things that fly under the radar for a lot of other reporters at the state capitol. be building out special sections in the newsletter every day, uh, bringing over some of what I learned from my previous job in television, trying to kind of create a special moment every day. So one of those sections is a section called On the Bill, where I'll be taking about a bill that, you know, somebody probably isn't going to hear about from, you know, regular reporters, but I'm going to break it down for people and tell them why it's important. 
another section is going to have a Q&A with top newsmakers every week. So the first week that we're launching, we'll have a Q&A with uh, Senate Mental Health Chair Samra Brook on the day of the mental health budget hearing. So oh, very wow. timely like that. Yes. Oh, that's right up to the second there. I love yeah, that. Exactly. So tell us how exactly is this going to work? How do people sign up for it? And, you know, how does it come to them to give us all of the skinny on that so people can go out and sign up for it? Sure. So if you're signed up for the Capital Confidential newsletter already, you don't have to do anything. You're already going to be put on the list. You'll get the new newsletter and then you can just continue receiving it. And just a heads up, you'll get both from now on. So Capital Confidential, the newsletter that we're currently putting out will go to the morning okay. and the new one will be released in the afternoon in the four o'clock hour. So we thought that that was a better space because we want this to get to you before you leave work. We want this to be one of the last things that you check in on before you leave work and then you go home and enjoy your night. You don't have to read the news for the rest of the evening. You can just read us and go home. That's great. Very convenient. I love yeah. it. So this newsletter, there's going to be a different platform, one that we haven't used before. So tell us, how does that work? Sure. So we're using Substack for this, and I'm really excited about this. I subscribe to a lot of Substack newsletters. So it's basically a tool where we make the newsletter in Substack, and then we can email it straight to your inbox rather than you know going through some weird, complicated system. All I have to do is write it down and send it to you. And the best advantage of this, I think, is that on the Substack website where we're going to be publishing it, you can look at the past editions of it too so you don't have to dig through your email for our old newsletters i know how frustrating it is to look for a newsletter that i got two weeks before and not be able to find it in my inbox so those will be for there for people as well and we'll also put information about live events on the website too and this will be a subscriber-based model and we're offering a really competitive price for this at ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars for a year and this is going to be something of so much value that we almost thought about charging more but we don't want to drive people away obviously so we want to give it to you for the cheap. I mean, obviously it's an election year, right? It's a big election year. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not just talking about <laughs> the presidential election. Um, there's a lot of, you know, more smaller local, you know, state level elections that we should be paying attention to. So, you know, this is a this is a wild year for you to jump in on this. How are you going to how are you going to tackle that? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's two parts to it, really. So. I see the second half of the year as the more political part of the year, although obviously we're going to be covering it in the meantime. The first half of the year, we're really focused on the legislative session and looking at issues like housing. What's going to happen this year after that issue blew up last year? Will anything happen? And really what we're looking at this year is since Democrats control the state Senate, the assembly and the governor's office, what are they going to be doing during the session to drive that politics in the second half of the year? Are they going to stay away from big, complicated issues and try to play it safe or or are they going to try to make a big splash to try to win votes? We just don't know. And we'll see what happens mostly in the state budget process, which happens in March. So if you're not going to sign up immediately, definitely sign up by March because that will be a really good month to sign up. In the second half of the year, we have to look at politics. I mean, this is going to be one of the most consequential elections in U.S. history. Republicans hold the U.S. House by a very slim margin, and that margin could be decided right here in New York in seats in the lower Hudson Valley and on Long Island. At the state level, the state Senate is in the hands of Democrats, as is the Assembly but we're always to look, looking to see if Republicans can kind of chip away at that power, if they have the power to do that, if they even want to do that, because they're really exploring an opposition party stance at the Capitol right now that's benefiting them in a lot of ways. When they're in the minority, they have a lot of power. All of the issues around bail reform are driven by them in the past few years. So even though they're not elected, we're always looking to see how these officials are exerting what they can do. 
New York is such a unique landscape for politics. It is. And people don't usually think that. They think of us as a deep blue state. And in some areas of the state, that's very true. But if you look at the state as a whole, it's very much not. Just in the past 10 years, Republicans controlled the state Senate, which is elected statewide. And, you know, just in the last gubernatorial election, the Republican came within five points of winning that election. So there is definitely not a sense here that this state is completely safe for Democrats anymore. And that's something that we'll be watching. That is so exciting. I've said that so many times during this interview, but but the whole thing is just very invigorating and we've got a lot to look forward to. So thank you so much for joining me and head over to timesunion.com to sign up for the Capital Confidential Newsletter. If you haven't already, um, you have all the information right there. Thank you. You can also read more news about state government and politics at timesunion.com slash state. And connect with any of our social channels, Facebook, Threads, Instagram, and YouTube to read more about everything else that we discuss on this podcast. That's it for this week. We will be back next week with more from inside the newsroom. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Patrick Tyne and Dan Clark for their contributions to this episode. <laughs>